This is the Golf Life Faith Podcast brought to you by College Golf Fellowship. I'm Toby Ragland, one of your hosts. Another host is Jace Barber, and we are CGF staff members full-time. We love serving the world of college golf, and this podcast is going to be conversations uh, with our PGA Tour partners, with CGF and other partners in the world of golf, and we hope you learn a lot. Uh, We certainly will along the way. Hope you join us for the journey and learn all areas, golf, life, and faith. Our guest on the podcast is Lee Jansen, a friend of CGF. He's hosted many CGF retreats. And, you know, just to give a, a long list of intro, a two-time winner on the Champions Tour, both in playoffs, a eight-time winner on the PGA Tour, twice on the European Tour. He won the 1993 and 1998 U.S. Opens. Um, and then another major championship on his resume is the 1995 Players' Championship. My, he was my player of choice um, on PGA Tour 96 on my home computer in the fourth grade. He was also a member of the Florida Southern men's golf team. We really hope you enjoy the conversation. Talk a lot about his early years on the PGA Tour, his experience with pursuing truth and understanding God's grace, and how Brad Payne and Paul Stankowski prompted him to host his first CGF retreat, even though they thought he would say no. Uh, so he's a good friend, and I hope you enjoy the conversation. Hey, this is Toby Ragland here, and recording on our podcast today, we have Mr. Lee Jansen coming off a big win on the Champions Tour, a friend of CGF for a long time. Lee, welcome. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, why don't we get right into you sharing with us the, the win from last week, what it felt like being in contention again, and just walk us through what it feels like to be in that situation. Right. Um, playing... Seven years on the Champions Tour now uh, with one win, and I knew uh, I had a few chances to win over the years, but nothing too recently. And uh, it was a wraparound season. We're getting towards the end of the year. Uh, Raleigh, or Cary, North Carolina, the SAS, is going to be our last regular event before the playoffs started, and I needed to move up at least five spots just to get into the second playoff event. I wasn't even thinking about our season ender. Um, the way I've been playing, and I really hadn't uh, hadn't had a top ten this year, uh, hadn't even been close. Um, so somewhat frustrating because uh, overall ball striking was good, was not holding any putts, changed putter. I saw my putter, uh, my putting stats and results were slowly getting better, uh, which was giving me some confidence that I could start shooting better scores. And um, you know, I went in the Raleigh just wanting to have a good tournament, so. In the middle of the first round, I, I had a nice streak of six birdies and seven holes, and suddenly I was leading, and I felt pretty comfortable. So yeah, I guess 30, nice 30, momentum 30, switch. Yeah, 30 something years of uh, playing professional golf, even though I haven't been in contention in a while, it, it was like, okay, you know, I, I know what I'm supposed to do now. That's and, awesome. And I just hovered around the lead and, um, you know, played okay Saturday, and then Sunday I was just plodding along after a terrible bogey on the first hole. And then as I got a little bit closer to the lead and saw a leaderboard and with a few holes to go, I said, golly, I actually have a chance to win this tournament. Uh, maybe if I make a couple more birdies, I can get into the playoff or even win. So, so, so you said you made six birdies in a row on Friday. Is that right? Six out of seven holes. Six out of seven holes. Yep. Man, that's awesome. What's your longest streak? Do you know your longest birdie streak since you've been playing professional? Um, maybe six, maybe seven. I don't know. Uh, six That's sounds awesome, about though. right. I, I played eight holes, eight under par one time. There was two pars in there, but two eagles. 
Man, that's got to feel good, though, to get six out of seven. Uh, that was the first round, correct? Correct, yes. Um, yes, yeah, off to a good and start. And that's been a big, big challenge for me um, over the last two years is that I haven't shot a good score the first day. And then on Champions Tour with three rounds most weeks, that's a lot to overcome if you don't shoot under par or, or in, in, at least in the 60s. Right, because you got to get it going. you got three rounds. Yeah. And I wanted to read a quote from you about this win, see if it's accurate first. But there's a couple things I picked up. You said, if I compare this to all the other times I've won, this is the most sporadic. I survived some bad shots. And I think, you know, as we're doing this, and we've got some really good golfers probably listening, especially college golfers, that might not have been in contention yet to, to have a big win, might not know what that feels like. So walk us through the fact that you said it was sporadic, you survived some bad shots. The big momentum change you just talked about, and just the overall emotion, what was it like? Right. Um, so there's a lot of learning along the way, and sometimes it's a lot of relearning. But I, I do know that um, when you get down to the end, whatever got you into contention, you know, you really shouldn't stray from that. Just keep doing that. It's routine, routine, routine. And if uh, you're thinking about the tempo of your swing, just keep doing that. If it's whatever it's thinking about, you know, adrenaline's now pumping and maybe you're hitting a little further. I know that that can happen um, from for all the years of experience. But, you know, I the one thing I didn't get away from, even though I didn't have 100% confidence that I knew where the ball was going to go, is that I still trusted my swing. Um, with, with that little bit of doubt or mistrust, you know, your tempo might change. You might try and make a, you know, um, an alteration mid-swing or something. That's what causes the bad shot. Right. So even though I hit some miss-it drives – um, they were still in the fairway, um, and it gave me opportunity to hit good iron shots. And then, really, the putter, the putting was the difference. Um, and probably the best I've putted from inside 10 feet in a few years as far as converting all the putts I did from inside 10 feet over the three days. And I love the fact that you said it's still a learning process, even at this point in your career, seven years into the Champions Tour. Uh, let's rewind all the way back to college. Um, so, rewinding past the fact that you've won two U.S. Opens. Big deal, right? Also a Players' Championship, um, which growing up in Jacksonville, I consider that a great major. Um, so huge wins. But let's go even back to college golf. What were some of maybe some favorite lessons you learned during that time? Any struggles during college? Well, um, it was an adjustment going from high school to college. I was not a uh, – super sought after junior I was okay in Lakeland Florida and uh, two weeks before school started I wasn't even going to Florida Southern um, I won a junior tournament called the Billy Tomasello I don't even know who that is but they had a junior tournament named after him and, That's the, awesome. and, and the Florida Southern golf coach Charlie Matlock said I, I understand you're not even going to a university to play golf you're going to a junior college I said that's right he goes well we still have money left if you're interested in playing at Florida Southern so it was Literally two weeks before school started when I decided to go there. Um, they had a great tradition of uh, two national championships in a row at that time, contending quite a few years in a row. Um, the whole golf team was back that year. Rocco Mediate had just transferred in, so it was a pretty stout team to try and bust the top five. And uh, I didn't even come close to making the top five. In fact, I played terrible. I, I regressed somehow. And school was a challenge. I didn't do very well in, in the classes, so I had a lot to learn. So I went to summer school, 
got my grade point average back up, um, practiced hard, and you know came back determined my sophomore year to make the team, which I did, and played. Um, I think I played every tournament from there on. My starting my sophomore year in the fall, um, I didn't miss any events. Yeah, I think a lot of guys though can relate to that. You know, getting to school and then having to juggle really a full-time job, like playing college athletics and especially golf and the hours you have to put in and juggling that with school, everybody listening can relate to that. And a lot of guys think they're the only ones that are going through that. Like, oh, my gosh, you know, how do I struggle through this? How do I figure this out? Oh, yeah, I, I would say I was a complete disaster my first year. So I would love for everybody to know that, you know, you might think things are going terrible, That you know, I understand, but it's, it's not the end of the world. You can turn things around. Yeah, that's good. Lee. You're still very young. Yeah, and you end up being on the winning team in the national championship, 1985, and then 1986. Um, is that correct? That's right. And you won the individual medal as well your senior year? That's right. Yeah, I, okay. I was fourth my sophomore year, second my junior year, and first my senior year. So. After a not great freshman year. Oh, yeah, where I couldn't even make the team. I, I you know, I went to – a B event or something. They say, you know, sent us where they, they, the big shots went to one tournament. We had another tournament going exactly the same time that I got to go to that one. Um, and I don't remember how I played there, but. So w- what, what changed between freshman to sophomore year? Like, what do you, what would you say was kind of the biggest change? Um, well, I didn't know it at the time, what the real cause was, but I learned through the years of reading all kinds of psychology books about golf and whatever, that uh, pain is a great motivator. So if you have a real frustration in your life, you'll do whatever it takes to get out of it. So some people quit because they don't want to experience the pain, or some people just they make a change in their life that gets them over it. So I worked harder and um, aimed higher and did what I was supposed to in class, uh, pay attention, look at my notes, test well, stay eligible. That's yeah. a big one. Stay eligible. Yes. Yeah. Take note of that, college so, players. So, yeah, I, I had to increase my hours uh, over the next three years to try and catch up to graduate. And so I still had eight hours left to graduate um, after my senior year and went back the next semester and took three classes to make sure I graduated. That's awesome. And I'd already turned pro and did Monday qualifiers and was going through tour school. Told my teachers I'm going to have to miss a couple days here and there because I'm going to be at tour school. And they were okay with that. And so as you progressed during those college years, how did you, you've had an awesome career looking back. How did, how do you measure golf success right now? And how did you see kind of measuring how you're doing over the course of your career? So starting in college, um, you know, first of all, I just wanted to make the team. Um, and then by the end of my sophomore year, you know, I qualified great. I got to where I could qualify for every tournament. Um, so there was that comfort level that you knew you could beat the other guys on your team to qualify. And then I had to learn how to do that in the golf tournament. At least start, you know, it's the whole thing. I can play like this when it doesn't matter at all on my home course. How do I transfer that to tournaments? When I started learning that, then it was okay. Now I'm learning how to shoot low scores in my home course. How do I learn how to do that in tournaments? And you start doing that. There's all the adjustments of how to handle that you know the new feeling like oh my gosh I'm six under par for the first time in my life in a golf tournament and I, I might even actually win so what how do I handle this 
sometimes it's a, it's a disaster or sometimes you you know you continue doing things it's all a learning process um and there's some disasters along the way absolutely golf, i've sure. had i've had plenty of those uh, and on tour too so <laughs> you, you know you really have to learn how to just delete it get over it um i, I don't mind reliving mistakes that i made and but i also try and rehearse it and do it the way i was supposed to do it um watching gil morgan be the first person to ever get the double digits under par at the 92 u.s open at pell beach and then he saturday left a chip in the rough on eight made double and i could just see his demeanor changed and he wasn't the same person um so i really thought okay if i ever get in that situation where i have a lead and make a mistake like that how do i react to that mm-hmm um, we're all going to experience adversity on the golf course and how you react to it really is, is the biggest thing. Um, it's not whether or not you're going to get a bad bounce or make a mistake and make a double somewhere. It's just how do you react to it? Yeah. And I think you started playing professionally in what I consider a really cool era of golf. Cause I was born in 1986, grew up around golf and my dad played professionally, watched how good he was, went to the players championship every year and the guys I got to watch I consider that just an incredible time you know even got to be at the players when Jack Nicholas was still playing in it um, guys like yourself Davis Love the third Nick Price Nick Faldo Greg Norman um, but you had a little process before you got to that level of being on the PGA Tour you have any fun stories from when you were doing the mini tours in Q schools and what was that like well, put a lot of miles on a lot of cars. Um, 1988, I'm trying to think which year this happened. It was 88 or 89. It was 88. Um, I Monday qualified for the tournament in Hattiesburg, Mississippi, which was a tour event. Um, got in a playoff, and I think it was five for four on the first hole, and the guy who hit the longest drive went for the green and two, ended a bogey in the hole, and the, and the other four of us made it in. Uh, so my very first tour event as a pro, and I'm finished 12th. So I was riding high on that, and we, we leave Sunday night and start driving to the southern tip of Texas to play um, in a PGT event, which then became the USGT, which then became the Hooters Tour. So that was before the uh, original Hogan Tour, which is now called the Corn Ferry Tour. But that's kind of so – a lot of the same guys would have been playing on what is now the Corn Ferry Tour if it existed back then. So we're going down there to play in this tournament. My car starts overheating, and, you know – we're getting in the middle of nowhere, basically. So we uh, pull over. We're on I-10 somewhere in Louisiana, and I'm not sure this place actually exists. I've looked for this exit because it was a gas station with a garage. Uh huh. Um, we pull in. It's late. It's 9:30, 10 o'clock at night. And the guy comes out, says, "Can I help you?" And I'm saying, "Well, I'm having radiator problems. We just want to take the thermostat off, and we'll just keep water in it, and you know, whatever." My wife knew more about this than I did. So the guy says something to me. I totally miss it. I don't know what he said. I ask him to repeat it. He repeats it. And then a third time, I'm like, I, I'm sorry. I don't understand you. And my wife says, he wants to know if you have any tools. His partner's left for the night, and all the tools are locked up inside, and he doesn't have the keys. I go, yeah, I have a toolkit in the car. And I looked at my wife and said, I had no idea you spoke a foreign language. What language is that? He was very Cajun. <laughs> just that I had not heard. I wonder if that was Ed Orgeron. Yeah, it could have been, could have been <laughs> if he started at a gas station. So we, you know, we still had to drive all the way to the southern tip of Texas. I finished, uh, I lost in a playoff, and then 
finished second. I just finished second before on that same tour, so I luckily made a little bit of money, and I had and I had to buy a new car because this car was done. So we got it back to Florida and bought a new car. Man, I, 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 there are so many mini tour players, uh, guys who are probably listening to this that probably have similar stories now in 2020. Like the amount of guys that I know that pile into cars and drive mile after mile after mile after mile to get to these tournaments is crazy. And the stories that are on the mini tour circuit probably are endless. Oh, yeah. And we stayed in some terrible places, but it was all about like we're not paying more than, a, you know, 75 bucks to stay in a place. So now, you know, in particular, I need to sleep somewhere where the bed's decent. I, you know, if you have a bad bed, that ruins your whole week. Oh, yeah. So oh, yeah. it's just a lot, a lot has changed. Yeah. What was the uh, – I've heard you had to pay for range balls early in the PGA Tour career. Is that a true story? Guys did pay for range balls. I qualified for the U.S. Open in 1985, and I had to pay a range fee for the week. So I think it was 25 bucks, and I guess that was normal on the tour back then. So um, you're at the U.S. Open. And you're paying a range fee to, to hit balls for the week. Yeah. That's awesome. Yep. <laughs> um, yeah, that, that I qualified while I was in college in between uh-huh. my junior and senior year. And my roommate lived in uh, Bloomfield, Michigan, right down the street from Oakland Hills. He was caddying for me. And one of the days walking on the range, there's Jack Nicklaus hitting balls, and there's Tom Watson hitting balls, and there's a spot right between them. And he says, there's a spot right there between those two guys. I'm like, nope, I'll just wait. Not a chance. <laughs> <laughs> that is so good. That's too good. All right, so I want to read uh, your Twitter bio here. Lakeland, Dreadnought. So from Lakeland. Yes. Great uh, high school football team. Not from Partridge, Minnesota. Not from Partridge, Minnesota. I was born in Minnesota, but not Partridge, Minnesota. Yeah along with possibly Judy Garland, based on Parks and Rec. She spent some time there. I saw you got a nice tweet from Parks and Rec. Yes, from, they responded, your which is great. So Lakeland Dreadnought, Florida Southern Col- College, 13 national championships. Um, I take it you weren't on all 13 of those. Just two. <laughs> Just I, two. I'm looking forward to changing that to 14. Husband and father, saved by grace. Tell us about that last part, saved by grace. Well, my walk... Uh, through faith. I loved reading all kinds of books about the truth of the gospel. Um, And I was really more concerned about the truth in the beginning of my walk, which kind of made me a Pharisee. It was all about the truth and not the the grace. Um, And then someone gave me a book about how Jesus came fully in truth and grace. And it really changed my thinking about, you know, it's good to know the facts of the Bible um, and what the message is and how to converse with it but without the grace that you give other people it's hard for them to accept it as easy well possibly without the Mm -hmm. grace you know it's great to know how to what the gospel is but if you don't have the grace in your heart to save the lost um how are you going to get through do you remember what book that was i don't know uh larry moody and dave kruger were our tour chaplains and and, um they didn't do it every year but they did give us books from time to time, and maybe I was the only one that got that book that year because it was one that I needed. But but they gave me more than a few books that I like. I loved reading. Um, but the grace, I just noticed more and more as time goes by. The grace in my life, uh, I, there's nothing I've done to earn God's favor. Um, when good things happen, I know that it really, no matter how hard I think I've worked, 
or how obedient or how good a life I think I've led, it really is still God's grace that allows good things to happen to me in my life. Yeah, and when did you get start to get involved with the PGA Tour Fellowship with Dave Kruger, Larry Moody, and the other guys on tour? Right. Um, I went, I know I went to a couple here and there, but not very often, um, and met a guy at Palm Springs. That was a really cool guy. Uh, the last name was Hershey. I remember that. I haven't talked to him or seen him forever. But he lived in Seattle. I said, well, the PGA is going to be there this year. Maybe I can get you to come speak at the study. And I said something to Larry. He goes, well, you ought to at least come to the study once in a while if you want to have somebody speak. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, it was just one of those things that, like, I wasn't going to the study, even though um, I had faith at that time. But so I realized that, you know, you need to. But you were comfortable bringing in your own speakers. Yeah. That's yeah, good. So I was like, okay, <laughs> I, I get it. I should start going more often before I can make a request like that. That's awesome. I mean, in circling back, I feel like anybody listening to this podcast, uh, whether you are walking with the Lord, whether whether you're a Christian or you're not, um, we've all gone through seasons of wrestling through that performance of, do I work my way to God or is it a gift? And I mean, everything that you just mentioned, Lee, is Ephesians 2, verse 8, where it says, and verse 9, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. And if you're listening to this podcast, you, you need to hear this, and you need to, it needs to fall and just sink into your heart that you can't work your way to God. Um, and especially as golfers, as, as athletes, it's generally hard work and performance equals the outcome, the success. Like if I work hard and then I perform, then I'm accepted. And everything that Lee just mentioned and everything that's in Ephesians 2 is no, you're accepted and you're forgiven and you're loved by grace. And you don't have to perform. But then it goes on in verse 10 to say, we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And just having that uh, formula in the right way, I mean, it, it changes your life when you realize I am accepted, I'm in loved, I'm loved, now I'm going to go. Um, and in gratitude, serve the Lord. And not serve the Lord so that he loves me. And so thanks, Jace, for reading straight from Ephesians 2, one of, our, one of my favorite chapters, especially sitting down with a college kid that has some questions about what actual Christianity looks like because um, we so often get wrapped up in us trying to earn our way to God and forgetting that it is about God's grace of him coming to us. And that's why it stuck out to me so well um, when I saw that in your Twitter bio, Saved by Grace. And how, you know, thinking about your walk with the Lord, how were you introduced to the ministry that Jason and I now work for, College Golf Fellowship, what was your first intro to CGF? Well, Paul Stankowski um, has been a friend for a long time, and Brad Payne was caddying for him at Colonial, and who I just briefly met. And we got into a discussion about what he did. I may have asked him, or he just started telling me, one of the two. Um, and he said, you know, Paul talked about this uh, retreat that he would host all these college kids at his house. So at the end of the round, Brad just said, hey, uh, pick a date and we'll just uh, bring, you know, 50 college kids to your house this winter. You know, he's 
said he was joking. I said, all right, I'll, I'll let me check with my wife. And he just figured that, that was the end of it, right? So I talked to Bev, and uh, she said, sure, let's do it. So I told him the next day, let's do it. And he goes, no, no, I need to fly to your house, talk to you guys, walk you guys through this whole thing, make sure you still want to do it. Yeah, let's do it. So uh, that was about 20 years ago, pretty close to it, maybe 18, 19, somewhere in there. Um, and 40-something college kids descended on us. Um, I, I, it was an incredible time, the, the four days, three nights, of watching these kids interact with each other with uh, the speaker that we had, Tommy Nelson. I think Tommy did some. Yeah, he was. Matt Chandler. I, I believe he was the first one. Um, I, mm-hmm. Great teacher. Um, Matt Chandler was fantastic. He he did a lot of hanging out with the guys, which I think had a great great impact on him. Um, but this, they've all been great experiences. But that was my first introduction, and then we hosted nine more. Um, and then you know, of course, I've gone to dinners with a lot of golf teams. I've stayed in contact with quite a few of the kids who are no longer kids anymore. They're on the tour or doing something else. Um, some became staff members. They've got kids now, and um, I guess, you know, it won't be long. Some of their kids may be going to a college golf fellowship retreat. Man. Yeah, and I think there's an awesome story. I don't remember the name. Toby probably does, but he was an atheist. He came to your retreat, and Matt Chandler was preaching. What was the name? Do you remember his name? Well, I don't. Are you talking about the John Darby yes, story? Yes, John yeah. Darby. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And he came to your retreat, and Matt Chandler was a speaker. And the majority of you listening probably know who Matt Chandler is, pastor of the Village Church, incredible author, just incredible man. And Darby, John Darby does not remember. He, did, he didn't remember anything that Matt Chandler taught on, but he remembered watching how everybody interacted and loved on each other and the fact that you would open up your home to 40 college guys. And that ended up changing his life and bringing him to the Lord. Just seeing all of that, the Lord began to work in his life. And it was not the, the, the group time or the small groups or the activities. It was just seeing the way that everybody loved each other and the fact that you would open up your home to that many college guys um, to come and be a part of a retreat. So if you haven't come to a retreat, I think we can all three agree that retreats are awesome and it's an amazing time, and uh, I've heard Davis say it too, and I felt the same way that however great it is for all the kids, it had a huge impact on me and my family too. Yeah. So um, I know that the year John Darby, we hit, someone got baptized in the lake behind my house, and I think that really that was something that he just didn't quite have a grasp on what that even meant, and a year later he was baptized in the same spot. That's incredible. What, a, what an awesome story. Yeah, there's so many stories from the retreats um, throughout CGF's history, especially the Stankowski retreats. My first um, in college was Davis Love's house in probably 2006 or seven. And Jace, what was your first CGF retreat? Uh, my first retreat was Webb Simpson. Uh, my brother invited me to come and be a part. He kind of co-hosted it with Webb. And my greatest memories, like I, I remember going back to college in the next semester, writing a paper, um, it was a character paper, and I wrote it on Webb Simpson because Webb and I read our Bibles and drank coffee every single morning at 5 a.m. each day of that retreat. And all the activities that happened were awesome. But those 30 minutes each morning with Webb, just talking about the Lord, reading our Bibles, drinking coffee, like it had such an impact on me that I went back and wrote papers 
about it. Um, it's just so cool to think back to your first retreat and then all the ones since. It's, uh, it's pretty neat. Lee, I think, you know, thinking back to just the amount of impact hosting retreats in your home has had on just a whole generation of, of guys that I played college golf against and guys I call friends now and just the, the huge impact. Um, I would love to hear you talk about your close friend, Payne Stewart, and kind of what you observed in his life change throughout the, I guess it was mid-90s um, through 99, that there's a lot of life change that showed people what it was like um, to follow Jesus, what true life change looks like. And that played a, a huge role, me watching that growing up. You know, I was 14, I think, when he passed away and played a huge role in, in how I viewed uh, um, what it looked like to follow after God. So let's introduce a lot of these college golfers that we work with now have a very you know, small idea of just the impact Payne Stewart had. But won't you give us kind of a firsthand look at that? Right. Um, well, Payne was playing on tour in the 80s um, while I was in college. So he was one of the guys I looked at as a, one of my favorite players. I loved watching him play and pulled for him and wanted him to win. I, I was convinced he was going to win the U.S. Open at Shinnecock 1986. And I think he might have had he not been playing with Ray Floyd because uh, he was playing great. He got the lead, and Ray Floyd chipped in on the 14th hole. And uh, Ray Floyd was famous for the look he would get on his face. And if he stared at you, it was like looking, you know, you've just seen, you know, you'd never want to be able to have Ray Floyd look at you in the face. It's over then. So, and uh, it, he went on to win the tournament after that. But I think had Payne not been playing with him, the chip in and the stare would have not influenced him quite the way it did. Yeah. Um, but I didn't know Payne in the 80s. But a lot of the guys that he had a huge impact on late in the 90s did play with him in the 80s, um, and they saw the biggest change. Um, so as I got to know Payne in the mid-90s, I, the transformation had already started. Mm-hmm. Paul Azinger going through cancer in 1993 that through 1994 had a huge impact on him. So there was a journey for Payne, too. Um, but I always enjoyed Payne's company. We played practice rounds together. Of course, we dueled it out in a couple of U.S. Opens. Um, I also played with him in the last round of the Players' Championship. So more than one occasion we played together in the heat of the moment of the tournament and uh, loved competing against each other. And he has dearly missed 22 years now. Uh, the anniversary just came by, October 25th. Two days ago. Yeah, and, uh, you know, we – Missed the person, Payne Stewart, a lot, but he would have had a great impact on the Champions Tour also. You know, he he walked into every room and didn't mind being the center of attention. In fact, he loved it, um, which would be great on the Champions Tour. Guys that loved entertaining. Um, but, he, yeah, there was certainly a change in his life, and I saw the impact it had on all the people that came to the funeral. Virtually the whole tour showed up. Um, you know, there are instances that happen in life where – it has a profound effect on people, and you wonder how long it's going to last. Um, and I could see that it was really going to affect a lot of the guys for the rest of their lives. Yeah, and I remember just the watching that funeral, um, the WWJD bracelets that almost every tour player was wearing um, for years after that. Right. It was incredible. Yes. Um, 
yeah, Payne's transformation. He he had didn't have any problem talking about it. Didn't he couldn't quote the Bible, but he read the Bible. Um, but he understood the message of grace that you know he'd lived his life one way his whole life and then realized that it didn't that it didn't matter that God didn't see him as uh, a failure that accepted him exactly who he was because he made him you know yeah yeah and I you know idolized so many of like yourself and fellow tour players and you know it was agonizing watching him. You know, I even I was born in '86, but I still remember the '93 U.S. Open. Vividly remember watching the '98 U.S. Open when you won, and the heartbreak of pain um, on that last hole. Um, less heartbreaking for you uh, to come out with the trophy. Yeah, but it was pretty. Um, just an iconic U.S. Open in '99 at Pinehurst, watching him win, and just even when we were having lunch today, picture of him making that putt um, right above us. So. I thought that was pretty cool, but the yeah, the, the uh, I think the '98 U.S. Open actually had a huge impact on him. Um, you know, you get into your 40s, guys are in better shape now, and they can make their careers last longer. But you know, we we all know that you know when you first get on tour, there is no end. At least you don't think there's an end to your career. You get in the 40s and you start thinking about how many more years do I have to be at my peak or at least near my peak. So, you know, I don't know if he wondered. But, you know, it would have been certainly understandable that if he thought that that was his last chance to win a U.S. Open in 98 and he just missed out on it uh, for him to come back the very next year and beat all those guys who would be number one in the world or, or close to it at some point in their career down the stretch was pretty amazing. As we wrap up, as you think through, you know, this, this podcast being called Golf, Life, Faith, think, think about those three areas, golf, life, and faith. Where do you feel like you're learning the most right now? Well, <laughs> um, I'm grateful for a lot of things. So um, even though I, I think God reveals his grace to me um, constantly in areas of my life that he needs to, or I guess I need to, I need it the most. Uh, you know, my wife and I, my best friend, we get along better now than we have in the entire time we've been married, and it's been like that for more than a few years now, and we both understand that without God's grace, that wouldn't be possible. Uh, so I'm enjoying that. Um, golf, you know, still, as long as I'm physically able, I'm going to keep playing. I'm still trying to figure out how to be more consistent and getting up near the lead more often. Uh, Bernhard Langer is a great inspiration for that. He just did it again, winning at age 64. Um, so that's an inspiration to say that maybe I have 10 more years left. I don't know if I want 10 more years, but... And... Uh, Something tells me you want the competitive juices for 10 more yeah. years. <laughs> um, and faith, um, I guess it's always growing. You know, you read, how often do you read the same scripture that you've read 20 times and suddenly something jumps off at you that for the first time that you didn't see before? So, yeah. Yeah, I think a lot of guys need to hear just all three things you mentioned, like, you can never stop being someone who's learning, being a lifetime student, whether it is your golf, whether it is your future wife, your family, uh, or it's your walk with the Lord. Like you never arrive in any aspect. It's always a constant growing and realizing that you don't have it all together and you don't have all the answers, whether it's your golf game or it's your family or it's your walk with the Lord. 
it's constantly trying to um, just get a little bit better. Uh, a lot of our guys on CGF staff say take base hits each day. Just get a little base hit. And then those base hits over time, they do a lot in the grand scheme of things. But it's just about doing the little things over and over again and then realizing you've never fully arrived. and You can always get a little bit better. That's right. There's no way to – I mean, as a golfer, we all think we can play perfect, but I haven't even ever come close to a perfect round of golf. I guess a perfect round of golf would be 18 birdies, but then I, if, you, if I actually did that, I'd be thinking, well, I could have eagled a couple of those par fives. <laughs> it's maybe, crazy how our brains <laughs> work. Yeah. We or maybe I should have hold – the one hole I had a wedge in, I should have hold that wedge or whatever. <laughs> it's okay to shoot high. Yeah, we, we, we're hoping you get there. Yeah, that would be awesome. I would love to see 18 birdies. That'd be yeah. great. And remember, you can't birdie them all if you don't birdie the first. That's so right. Just there make sure to birdie the first. Well, Lee, thank you for your time. Sure. Jace, I enjoyed it. And we thank you for listening. Thanks for taking the time to listen to the Golf Life Faith podcast. Whether you're a college golfer, a coach, or you just love golf, we'd love to hear from you. If you have any questions, please email us at podcast at collegegolffellowship.com. Also, check us out on Instagram at collegegolffellowship and on Twitter at cgftweet. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast and be on the lookout for the next episode next month. Cheers.